Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening. Welcome to Food at Sydney, hosted by Sydney Ideas. Before we begin proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching and learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within Aboriginal custodianship of country. And I think that that acknowledgement is extremely relevant tonight because we're going to talk with someone who has a very strong connection with the land. And um, it's an amazing gift that she has used to empower women, not only within her home country of Zimbabwe, but women around the world. It's my great pleasure tonight to welcome Chido Govera, who possibly needs no introduction for this audience because I'm sure you're here because you've heard at least part of her amazing story. And I won't elaborate on that because we are very fortunate to have a conversation with her tonight. Uh, I will tell you the, pr the proceedings for tonight, the format. Uh, not only will I be in conversation with Cheeto for approximately 30 minutes, we will then be joined on stage with two colleagues from the University of Sydney, Dr. Danielle Selimar and Professor, Professor Danielle Selimar and Professor Tim Allender. And um, at this point, I will welcome Cheeto Guevara to join me on the stage. Welcome Cheeto. Thank you very much. You've had a very busy, busy schedule while you've been here in Australia, and I understand it's three weeks and heading home tomorrow. Um, can you give us a little snapshot of what you've done and maybe a highlight? Well, um, we've been uh, visiting different places, uh, having lots of interviews, including Q&A, was uh, quite an interesting challenge. Uh, <laughs> we... We went to Melbourne to visit there some uh, uh, mushroom farm, um, one of uh, the biggest ones that I think the girls have seen. Uh, we went to Mitagong, also to another mushroom farm, which has excited the girls about going back home and growing a new kind of mushroom for them, the shiitake mushroom. So we're going to be introducing that at our production at, uh, at home. But it was really like, oh, auntie, this is so cool. When we get home, we can do this, and we have to change the shelves. We, went, we have to do this differently. So um, I, I'm going to have a hard time when I get home, I think. Um, and uh, I think the, the highlight, uh, well, uh, there are two, I think. One is that uh, I got to spend some time with uh, Kylie Kong at the market uh, last weekend. And, um, and then the other one is that um, I actually am going to get a chance to spend time with one of my favorite, favorite mushroom persons thanks to this trip. Some of you might know Paul Stamets. He's one of the 
best mushroom persons you can come across who's, who's doing the most interesting research, finding out what more mushrooms can do apart from just being food and medicine for people, but also um, uh, for the land, for water, for saving bees and different kinds of things. And thanks to our being here and all the interviews, we're going to get a chance to spend some time with him next year and learn something that will continue to enrich our work. We've made also lots of friends, and that's another highlight, but yes. Wonderful. Well, I hope you can count tonight as another highlight. I know that while you and Perseverance and Anna have been here, you've been staying at Sancta Sophia College at yes. the university, which is terrific. That's true. So many people have been very, very kind to us, giving uh, of their time, of their space. And yes, we stayed at uh, Sancta Sophia. That has been, you know, we always say, oh, now we're going home. So we felt at home there, and we are very grateful for that. And of course, um, Rebecca has given a lot of her time and, 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 and her uh, space, her family, to be with us and to help us achieve what we've achieved. So we're grateful to so many, many people who've given their time. And uh, Mad, for example, who made all of this possible. So we have a lot of people for, for whom we have a lot of gratitude for making this possible. Well, we're very grateful to you for being here tonight. And I think the planet should be very grateful to you because you're doing some amazing things. And what I'd like to ask you first of all is to take us right back to the beginning, um, to how you came to develop the wonderful Future of Hope Foundation and how your life took you to do that. Um, <laughs> the very beginning. I created the Future of Hope Foundation because I was reflecting on my life I was reflecting on my life in terms of uh, a book that I had written as a way of healing from post-traumatic stress because I had a very difficult childhood. So when I was 19 years old, I got sick and we're trying to figure out uh, what's going on with me. And at some point they found that I had post-traumatic stress. But uh, it was a very funny conversation to have the doctors sitting there say, now we know what you're sick from but we can't help you, you have to help yourself. And this, this was uh, uh, in Switzerland. And I'm sitting there thinking, I came all the way from Zimbabwe, so you can tell me that you know what I am sick from, but you can't help me, what's this? But um, it was also, it turned out to be one of the most empowering things that uh, I, I, I heard when I needed it. So they told me, you have to deal with the stuff that you went through as a child and by processing that, and only by processing that, will you be able to actually get over it. We can help you, but what we can help you with is just the side effects. But the big work has to happen from within you. And I had been doing quite a bit of work from within me, but that had somehow I hadn't touched on some of those issues. And so I had a choice between um, uh, painting, drawing, talking about my experiences as a child as a way of processing them but uh, I was very shy and I, I, I just couldn't sit there and start talking about it and I was it, it, it would easily get messy you know you, you talk about very sad things before you've even dealt with them so I chose to write and I remember writing and, and crying so hard but at the same time, knowing that, if, uh, thinking that if these people say that I can help myself by doing these things, I really have to try and do it and see if it works. 
So I wrote about my story. It was titled The Future of Hope. And when I was 23, I looked back and said, oh, here I am. I'm not as I was when I was 19. And, and yes, I like the title The Future of Hope. And I tried to speak to it when I wrote my story. But what is the future of hope today? How different is it? Today from when, when, I, when I was 19, when I was sad, when uh, I was in pain. And I thought to myself, I don't want to see it and write again. I want to have a practical demonstration of what the future of hope is. That's how I actually came to creating the foundation. And uh, the title, The Future of Hope, actually is inspired by a conference which was held in Hiroshima sometime around 1994, 1995, by Gunter Pauli and Elie Wiesel, who was a survivor of, of uh, Auschwitz. And um, when I finished writing my story, I sent it to Gunter Pauli, who is my adopted father. And when he got it, he was the one who sent me an email that says, um, so the, what about this for, as an idea for a title for your book? And I, had, I read it just once and I say, yes. It was really like, yes, this is the title for my book. And today it is the title of my foundation. And can you tell us a little bit about what the foundation does? The foundation focuses on working with women, uh, uh, young orphans, girls, to empower them so they can take... Uh, they, they can contribute towards to bettering their circumstances. Um, why do I focus on women and girls and especially orphans? Because I grew up as one and I saw how difficult it was to, 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 to survive in the village. And when I learned to grow mushrooms when I was 11, that really became a, uh, an important moment, a defining moment in my story where I realized that by growing mushrooms, I could actually be able to secure food for myself, to raise an income. So we focus on food as a way of empowering people to be able to feed themselves, to be able to raise an income. And when you have those two things, you can be able to learn all of the other things that you need and you can grow, but without them, you are stuck and also abuse is even more when you don't have food, um, when you don't have uh, an income, when you're not contributing something in the community. You don't even have the security that the community is supposed to offer because you're just, you, you are nobody. And so we try to use something that brings the women and the girls in a space where they can be acknowledged and respected for what they do, but that really starts with being able to feed themselves and having an impact on their community, and from there they can grow to doing more things. And I guess one of the uh, questions that a lot of people have is, why mushrooms? Well, <laughs> um, it's an important question because a lot of times people have been taught different kinds of skills. I mean, people have been taught to grow uh, tomatoes, people have been taught to grow moringa trees and all these things. There's been lots of things. But mushrooms, because mushrooms are really building on what works locally. And this is an important step in building local ownership of whatever initiatives we introduce in communities. What works locally? Well, we are an agriculture-based uh, uh, country, and the continent is also very um, agriculture-based. Based. And that's the main thing. Every family has a small field where they try to grow some food. Uh, in some places where they're not growing corn, wheat, and other things, they're trying to raise animals, cattle, mostly goats, uh, you name it. 
And mushrooms are then um, you know, a, a, a very good match because they're building on this agricultural waste which is available. When people go to bed without food, I mean, I was tending to a field from my grandmother and I had to do on the land what a young girl of eight, nine can do. And at the end of every farming season, the only thing that I had in abundance was corn stalks, but no corn. I had millet stalks, but no millet. And the whole community also has this to give for free, but you can't eat it. Mushrooms can eat that, and in a very short span of time, you can have food that you can eat. You have a, a high-quality food that the community people also are willing to pay for. And I couldn't sell corn even if I grew it because everybody in the community was growing it. But when I grow mushrooms, first of all, I, t I, I get easy access to the resource, the main resource, which is the agricultural waste. And when I grow them, I am converting this waste into food that I can sell to some of the people in the community and something that I can eat, something that's nutritious. But I start a whole new chain that can help me to, uh, to produce more. What are we doing today? We're running what we're calling the mushroom-based integrated food production system. So by starting with growing mushrooms, you're converting corn stalks into mushrooms. When you're done harvesting your mushrooms, you still have the leftovers of those corn stalks, but this time they have mushroom mycelium in them. And that you can put on the land and you start contribute towards rebuilding the topsoil. And when you rebuild the topsoil, well, you can grow other stuff. But from the mushroom cells, you can buy seeds to put on the land. And then you have, ha you have the spent substrate working as a, uh, as a compost without having to wait for six to eight months to get a compost. And so it's fast returns, it's utilizing waste, and that helps to really build local ownership because the resources, the major resources that you need are available within the community. Thank you. It's um, very apparent hearing you that the impact of growing the mushrooms is much wider than just addressing some food security concerns within the community. Can you talk a little bit about the wider implications of what you're doing in not only empowering women to develop social enterprises and stimulate local economies, but also um, what what specifically the focus on women and girls contributes to the community? Well, women and girls are a very important part of any community. I can speak for where I come from. We are the ones who are responsible for making sure that the children are fed, the children are in good health. And I think the reason why we focus on women and girls is really because we know that when we give them the tools, everyone in the community will be able to benefit. When they are in, 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 in a good relation with, them, with themselves, when they can feed, when they can access an income, the community can change. And we can actually rebuild the sense of community. When you give the tools to a woman, they will not only be taking care of their children who are sitting closest to them, you, they will take care of the children in the community. So they build up the community and they really can facilitate for things to happen, especially concerning their children. And that's very, very important because we raise both the girls and the boys. And so when we get the tools, we can really make change happen. 
And in terms of your impact through visits to other countries, um, what, have, what have you done to share your knowledge as a mushroom farmer, but also as an, an advocate for small-scale sustainable agriculture? Well, what I have done to share my knowledge was, uh, first of all, the most important thing that I set out to do when I learned to farm mushrooms was to simplify the art of cultivating mushrooms so that I can share this with as many people as possible. One of the things that I have done is that I've been able to travel and train other entrepreneurs in different parts of the world. So some of you might be familiar with uh, this whole move of people to, into producing mushrooms on coffee grounds collecting coffee grounds from a cafe where people are drinking coffee, putting that in a basement, growing mushrooms, coffee grounds put in a shipping container in the middle of Paris, people growing mushrooms there. It actually starts from um, a young girl in Zimbabwe who said, I want to make this simple enough that when I was asked if I could uh, grow mushrooms on uh, coffee grounds, I said, yes, we can. And I did it, training the first group in, in the USA, in San Francisco, and taking that to Europe, to Holland, and spreading it around. Now we have hundreds of uh, uh, small mushroom production units, which are run uh, based on, on the conversion of coffee grounds into mushrooms. And we actually have uh, some producers also here in, in, uh, in Australia. And my first trip actually to Australia was to train people to farm mushrooms on coffee. And apart from that, I've worked in India, I've worked in Congo, Cameroon, Tanzania, Ghana, uh, many other places. And we are looking now to also expand to Kenya, Rwanda, and different parts with the model we are building now with the Future of Hope Foundation. That's wonderful. You might have realised already that Sydney has an almost unhealthy obsession with coffee. So I think that you found... Um, <laughs> we cannot call it unhealthy anymore. <laughs> no, this is true. That's very true. And with respect to that, do you see uh, opportunities for using... I love it that it's a simplified system because one thing about sustainable food systems is they often appear quite complicated so many issues. It's a classic wicked problem, isn't it? It's difficult to solve, solve this problem, but can you see an application of this technology in cities around the world? Is this something that urban agriculture advocates can adopt and do relatively easily? Definitely. I mean, I think this is also what we've been able to um, inspire, which is now we can be able to see all these mushroom farms in the cities. Um, so this is definitely something that can work not just in Zimbabwe. And I think one of the things that I'm really passionate about is that I don't want to become, you know, the girl who is working towards building African solutions. There's no such thing as a, just an African solution. We have had a habit of... Um, uh, you know, sort of, we in Zimbabwe are always thinking uh, we have to wait and see what all the developed countries are doing and then we can follow in their footsteps. Even when they're on the other end and trying to go back to what we were doing, that we are still trying to leave to go to what, what they're doing. I think we, are, we also have a responsibility really of building solutions that can work across our boundaries. So I really don't want to get stuck in this, you know, just uh, building something for Africa only because Issues of sustainability are not just something for Africa only, but also real sustainability is actually not meant to be so complicated that we think some people cannot do it. That's excellent advice. I um, 
have to uh, refer to Jermaine Greer's comment to you on Q&A regarding the nutritional content of mushrooms because in Australia we have a mushroom advertising campaign that tells us every day how good they are for us but the medicinal and nutritious nutrition benefits of mushrooms are particularly relevant to your work aren't they can you explain how well what um, so what we look out for is also that we don't want to spend time just growing corn like we've been doing because you don't get all the nutrients that you need from just corn. And mushrooms actually are special in the sense that, yes, they have about 23% protein and they have all the essential amino acids and they have uh, a lot of antioxidants and this and uh, lots of things and list is endless. But the most important thing is that we know today that there exists research which says that uh, a simple oyster mushroom is actually very, very helpful in terms of improving the immune system of people living with HIV and AIDS. Now, talk about the story of orphans in Zimbabwe. Orphans in Zimbabwe make almost 10% of the population. We have about 1.2 million orphans in Zimbabwe. And we are a population of 12 million people. Now, when you have 1.2 who are orphans, and mainly because of HIV and AIDS, you don't want to just uh, you know, do whatever. So you also want to target exactly where are you putting your efforts. And mushrooms for us present big opportunities. It just eating them every day improves the immune system. And we know that we, we, we see people, some of the biggest customers of, for mushrooms in the communities where we work, are people who are living with HIV and AIDS, and they, have, uh, they, they are also being educated that they cannot eat different kinds of meat anymore, so they only have to depend on vegetables, which most of the times they eat only one kind of vegetables because they're they not so flexible, some of them, to try different things. But mushrooms have been a, a part of our diet for a long time. I lived with a grandmother who was nearly blind, and I used to walk my grandmother into the forest, she would sit under a tree. I ran around as a little girl collecting different types of mushrooms. I didn't know them, but I collected different types of mushrooms. She only made a point to say uh, every different mushroom in its own pile. And she would reach out and break a piece and smell it. And she would tell me, this is an edible mushroom. We can go home and eat, the, eat, eat this one today. This is a poisonous mushroom, but edible. So what we will do, we take this, we go home, we boil it for a long time, we dry it in the sun, and then we cook it again. It's not poisonous anymore. So she knew so much about mushrooms because they had to depend on it. When they, when, and they just wouldn't walk into a shop and buy meat like we do, or you have to go and hunt. And part of what the exercise was, then you, of course you hunt, but you also forage for wild foods, and mushrooms was one of them. So it's an important part of our diet because it contributes very, very um, uh, positively to the diet. Mm -hmm. And that's also one of the reasons why today it's something very important where we can convert uh, 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 corn stalks into protein. And back to that point, you have mentioned several times that mushrooms deal with food waste. And I imagine that the amount of food you waste in Zimbabwe, well, I may be wrong, does not compare with the <laughs> amount of food we waste in Australia. Um, it's, a, it's a real issue for the world because, of course, a lot of the global greenhouse 
gas emissions that are attributed to food production occur at different stages of the food value chain, don't they? So um, tell us more about, about how that became a motivation. Was it a, an important feature for you, aside from the availability of the waste? Were you thinking we can do something with this waste? I think as a, as, a, as a child, when I was starting, it was more, it was important actually the whole story of waste because I had cornstalks which I could not eat, but they would be left there and every season everybody had to burn them. And so that was a, a waste that was also creating a, a big danger. We had to lie, put, our, put our fields on fire and we have only these houses which are built with wooden sticks and, and grass and many times there were many accidents. So it was utilizing that waste, yes. But I think the, more, the, the, the most important part where it really becomes about managing waste, because I start to understand how much waste is uh, uh, produced in, in, in the whole uh, agriculture value chain, in specific uh, with coffee, we figured out that the production of coffee on the farm until what we are drinking, we're only drinking 0.2% of what is actually produced. And, and seeing these things uh, is something that, I, I, that, that really makes it very, very important also that we want to contribute towards waste management. But of course, what we waste is very different from what you waste. You waste what we thrive to get. Oh. And, and that's, uh, like I said before, that's a bit disturbing for me because we, we waste because we used to waste because we didn't know better. But now when we know, we do everything that we can to utilize that waste so that we don't have to create any, any waste. But you also still have quite a number of people who think a sign of showing how much, wealth we, how much wealth we have is to eat and leave food on the plate. We actually have something very silly that when a girl goes on the first date and a boy buys you food, don't eat everything. You eat like you're not really hungry, even though when you're hungry. And this, these are all things that, that are unnecessary, which is leading to waste of actually a valuable food. And I think on this part of the world, that is still a very, very big question where we hope we can teach you something. <laughs> I think you can teach, teach us a lot in that and many other respects. And before, we, um, before I invite Danny and Tim onto the stage, I just have one last question. How um, open is uh, society in Zimbabwe to your idea to get women in enterprise through this project? Have you, have you had much support or what barriers have you met? I think in Zimbabwe in particular, one of the biggest challenges for us today is to actually get more and more people to stand up for themselves because that's the only way we're going to thrive. So it's not really, there's not, there's every space for everyone, men and women to step forward and say they do something. Because we have to depend on that. We cannot, there's no one who actually has the right to say women should not do this because the major challenge is that we don't have enough opportunities for everyone, not even the men. We are having to take responsibility of creating our own opportunities, and that is what we are doing. Of course, from time to time, you face challenges that uh, are nothing really to do with um, uh, opposition towards women getting empowered, but it's just really an issue of uh, all the big players 
seeing an opportunity and wanting to take it for themselves, take it, take it away from the small people. So we keep it to the big people. That's the only challenge. But otherwise, the women are also realizing that it is time. We need to do something for ourselves. And so we, we've been very fortunate that the country has been going through a rough time, that it's easy to actually get everybody to realize that they need to do something. Of course, uh, 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 farming is still uh, dominated by men, that it's, it's a bit difficult for them to accept that uh, we are actually also farmers, especially when I say, oh, I'm a farmer, and everybody looks at me like, you are a farmer, seriously? <laughs> Maybe your hands are too soft. <laughs> it's mushrooms. They're good for your, good for your skin as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I can say my hands are too, are too soft. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I'd like to welcome Professor Selimar and Professor Alanda onto the stage, please. I'll just say a little bit about each of them and embarrass them first. <laughs> now, um, Danny is a professor in the Department of Sociology and Social Policy with a focus on human rights and a particular interest in the social and cultural dimensions of human rights Ooh, violations and protections. And Tim, his research uh, focuses on underprivileged women and education in India and he has been researching these themes for over 20 years, especially with a focus on fe Indian feminism and femininity. So I'm going to ask Danny first to um, just intervene in the conversation and perhaps um, ask Cheeto a question. Thank you. Um, hi, everyone. Um, it's such an honour to share the stage with you, with all of you, but particularly with you. Um, it's, um, in these times, I think we all need to be inspired about what's possible. We're flooded and saturated with hopelessness and overwhelming information, and it's very hard to to remain in action in the face of that. So it's very important for me to be in the presence of someone who is, uh, who is growing the world in so many ways, so thank you. Um, so I know that when Alana asked me to be part of this panel, she asked me because of my background as a human rights scholar and activist, but um, I think I'm gonna disappoint you a little bit because when I started to read about your work, um, what really fascinated me was that you work with the cultivation of mushrooms. And, and I, I just thought that was so extraordinarily opposite to what you do. Um, I don't know how many people here know about mushrooms or mycelium, but mycelium's amazing. Um, and, you know, most of us, urban, although I'm not urban anymore, but urban city siders, we think of shiitakes and Swiss brown and portobellos and shemenji and all of the gourmet mushrooms that we have. But um, what I think is far more fascinating and really I think is this beautiful metaphor for your work is mycelium, which is the fungal mass, the branching thread-like hi-fi that, that un actually underpin the earth. And, um, and where I live, I actually live not far from Mittagong. Um, when we walk in the woods, you see these amazing appearances of fungi, these huge orange creatures that look like they come out of, out of space. But what's really remarkable is that they're just the jewel that belongs to a much larger network of beings. Um, and I just wanted to quote Paul Stamets, who you, who you mentioned at the beginning, a mycologist, 
um, who really brought mycelium to politics, I think, in a, in a really important way. And he describes mushrooms and mycelium, I'm just going to quote him, as quiet allies that are essential for our healthy existence. They are enigmatic, enigmatic, have a sense of humour and socially as well as spiritually bond together all that admire them. They have much to teach us. I mean, I could have been talking about you, right? Um, and one of the parts of the story that I find so wondrous about mycelium is that they infuse the landscape. They're constantly there, they're these multi-dimensional transfer of food through trees and ecosystems. They're, they're the kind of necessary condition for existence. Um, they're these cells that permeate and make possible the individuals that we notice. They're the connections that, that are the, the condition of possibility for everything particular happening. And yet so often we don't know that they're there. And um, listening to you, what struck me, uh, one of my frustrations working in the field of human rights is, and as an academic, and I'm sure it's something that many academics fit, um, share, is the segmentation of the way that we think about problems. So, you know, people in human rights and development know very well that empowering and educating women is one of the most effective ways to make changes around a range of socioeconomic and political issues. But that's so often disconnected from our concern for the earth um, and, and the way that you, like mycelium, interconnect so that the whole ecosystem is fed and not only one part of it at the expense of the other. So I had really two reflections that I wanted to put to you. Um, one is that um, as against the kind of great man rhetoric narrative of how we change the world, it seemed to me that, that, that your approach is one that really is dedicated to connections and to relationships and how relationships then become the condition of possibility for change. Uh, how much of your work is about rela your relationships with women, your relationships with communities, and so their relationship building then becomes the seat of transformation. And second, that um, like the amazing mushrooms uh, on our land, um, you're like this amazing mushroom, the one that we get to see, right? The one that, that appears. Um, but how is it that, that, that we actually get connected to the fact that there's this whole network of mycelium, right? There's a whole lot more going on that, you know, you're brought to Australia and it's, it's fantastic. It's like people get to know about your work. But what still remains invisible is this whole network that you're part of. And, and I'm thinking about all of the other women who are the connection of the ecosystem. How do we you know, remind ourselves of the invisible connectedness, which is the condition of possibility for everything that's happening, including what you're doing. Thank you. Would you, would you like to respond to that, Cheeto? <laughs> it, it didn't really sound like a question, but okay. <laughs> I was thinking, okay, we'll just agree on this one. This is important, but anyway. Um, so, how do we remind ourselves of this invisible uh, network uh, that's down below. Um, for me, the most important thing in my work, it has been that I have 
been really a hands-on person. I go out into the communities and I do work there. And I come out of there, then I come to places like here. And one of the things that I really work to do is, yes, to create a sense of community that is, um, when I do my training for, uh, uh, sessions, I am bringing to my trainings women and girls so that they can work together, putting them in groups when they go back. But I also uh, create um, uh, opportunities like what we have today, where we can come out here to, with some of the young girls that we work with. So they start to also become, I mean, to, to become visible. So building this connection so that we're not working in a silo where we just do something with women in Zimbabwe and then I come out here and I talk about it. Oh, I work with some groups of women in Zimbabwe without real connection. So we're trying to build this real connection in everything that we do because we realize that this is very, very important. I cannot go and isolate the young girls from the communities and say, oh, we're just going to pick this one girl and we're going to put her uh, in Australia so she can learn to grow mushrooms in Mitagong. We stay within the community and we bring the opportunities there, but we also take the solutions from there and we share them. So we need to, to, to learn to share more. And I think part of it is really learning to tap from inside uh, our individual selves. Because again, that's part also of that invisible network. This is the individual self. This is where you, you, you get excited as an individual to want to do something. That's how you bring out, uh, just like the, the mycelial layer, which is underneath. And we have that also from inside us. That's where we have our passion. And we need to be able to share it with the world. We need to show that in the things that we do, in the connections that we build. And part of why we are here is also understanding that we need to build connections beyond our borders, just like I said. Because like the mushrooms, these connections are what is most important to bring something richer on the surface. And that is why we are here, to build connections and to try and learn from the mushrooms how we can do and become stronger together. Thank you. That's a lovely response to a beautiful, beautiful metaphor. I've been reading that book called The Hidden Life of Trees. Has anyone been reading that? Once you start, you won't be able to stop because it just may, never, never look at a forest the same way again. But um, I'll hand over to Tim, who researches in a very interesting area called international education, which is not really what I actually initially thought it was. So go ahead, Tim. Never get it right. Um, good evening, everyone. And again, it's a great honour to share this platform with you, Cheetah, and to my colleagues as well. Um, I think, yes, international education, uh, looking at it in broad uh, picture, is, is about these days looking at the problematics of trying to impose international Western-constructed solutions, in inverted commas, to local um, problems, in inverted commas, uh, in Asian and African domains in particular. And um, I suppose we focus quite a bit on the World Bank and the United Nations and the, the temptation that often these organisations succumb to, which is the idea that we have a template solution that we can just put on wherever we go. That in other words, the West and its hegemonic ideas of knowing are somehow transferable to any particular poverty setting. Um, and listening to Cheeto tonight, and um, I had a whole lot of notes and I've just scribbled some other things 
that I think are more responsive to what you've said. So forgive my sort of chaotic thoughts, if you don't mind, Chair. We love chaotic thoughts. <laughs> the first one is that really comes across to me is the lived experience. And I, as I was saying a little bit earlier, um, I can spend six weeks talking to my students as a white Anglo-Saxon male about the theories around um, poverty and oppression and um, particularly to do with females, and they say, you know, they, they read it all and they intellectualise it about it. But I just imagine if, if only you were here another week or even just another couple of hours to spend with my students, they would get it so much more quickly because yours is a lived experience and it's from the local moving up, um, looking at solutions as, you, as you've seen it. And there are three levels, really, I think. Now, one is the... the the very honest way you've talked, perhaps in other forms, rather than here about your earlier life and the enormous challenges and barriers that you've faced. Then this wonderful self-actualisation that you've talked about in relation to finding uh, ways to bring women together uh, in a very close cultural setting, of course, to find solutions uh, or to actualise. And then thirdly, the theorisation about it all, which you do beautifully as well, if I may say so. I only do the last part and I, I don't have the lived experience and it, it makes me feel incredibly ina um, inadequate when I hear this deeper narrative that you, that you get a, bring across. Um, my experience is with India and I'm, I've, I really struggle with this one because I don't want to skew the discussion to the subcontinent, far from it, but... What is striking is that there are extraordinarily uh, similarities in, in what you're saying about some of the things that come up in my research. And, and my research is basically about destitute and trafficked girls in Kolkata in particular. And of course, the issues are quite similar. You know, uh, child marriage, uh, tra trafficking, and of course, poverty. Um, and the processes of change that, that I look at have resonance, I think, Chido, with what you are talking about as well. And that is that when I think about it, we're talking about very what seems to be a very simple centre. Yours is mushrooms. Um, mine is perhaps rainbow schools, um, which are schools that are set up in NGO uh, formal schooling set settings. And there's the top story where girls are brought in from red light districts and are taught basic literacy in these top stories of these school buildings, partly by um, students in the main school. And they are kept there overnight. Um, they're protected from the village pimps. Um, and the Rainbow School, rather like mushrooms, is a very simple, in a sense, conceptualisation of, of what's happening. And it's a lovely catch. But, of course, the trajectories that grow out from that are, are much more complex. And I could go into those tonight, but that, that's not what this is about today. But just to mention a couple, barefoot teacher training uh, emanates out from these sites. And also surveys using the cultural permission from the families that are brought into these rainbow schools, the children are from these families, to go out and do surveys to look at where microcredit might work because, of course, these girls need a future. They can't just be in school forever. And I think, in a way, what I'm getting at here is when I look at the many wonderful people working in this setting is that they do need to be very spontaneous in the way they think and very intuitive in terms of the strategies that they deploy 
but out from this very simple centre. And I was just wondering, Cheeto, given that I suspect we, we should ask you a question uh, in relation, not just a great big spiel, but I'm just wondering, do you see resonance in terms of what you're doing with your centre? Uh, you know, these, you're conscious clearly of these more complex trajectories that are coming out from growing mushrooms and teaching girls and women about hygiene. I think you've mentioned that elsewhere. Community belonging, cultural acceptance of what you do. Um, does my sort of very inadequate rendering of what I'm doing in India, does that have resonance for what you, you see in what you, you do in Africa? Um, I think it does. Uh, I mean, the, the, I, I have been in India, uh, but of course not doing what you're doing. I think the most important is that every time, in every situation, we have to define, of course, a starting point. And out of that, we have to be prepared to see then to sustain our efforts. Where do we go? We start here, but to sustain the efforts, where do we go? And um, we often have to deal with similar things as well. One example is that, so yes, we taught people to grow mushrooms, and then we say they can bring mushrooms to market, but we also realize that quickly these uh, women on their own cannot go and start confronting the market. And so we continuously have to look and, and to, to improve on what we are doing to make sure that the impact becomes long-lasting. But uh, indeed, um, efforts have to be put in place that, such that they're not only addressing one single thing. Even if it's a simple approach, it has to be able to, to be expanded to be able to address many different issues. And that, that was another great response to, uh, to the reflections. I'd like to thank Danny and Tim for, for delivering those. Uh, we have a very interested audience, and I know that you've got plenty of questions that you'd also like to ask Cheeto now. I believe we have a travelling microphone, and if you put your hand up, you can ask um, Cheeto a question. Hi. I'm assuming you grow button and oyster mushrooms. Uh, we grow uh, right now only the oyster mushroom, and we are working to introduce uh, shiitakes. We want to grow some reishi mushrooms in uh, different types. But what we do is we start with oyster in many of the communities because that's the easiest one that they can deal with. So you sterilize the compost, or we don't sterilize; we pasteurize. Oh. Okay. And you are aligned with the climatic conditions. Uh, we, we align with the climate conditions, yes. Uh, so in, in Zimbabwe, we go with the summer oyster because most of the times it's, uh, it's warm. But uh, we also try to play around with some strains so they can uh, adapt to the local conditions. And uh, uh, in, uh, we, we do the production indoors, so that's also very easy to regulate. So do you buy spawn or do you have a program to distribute spawn? Um, right now, we're actually still buying the spawn for the oyster mushroom. That's also one of the reasons why we haven't gone into other types of mushrooms, because we're working with what's available in Zimbabwe. And one of the things that we are working to do now is to actually build our own laboratory, because what we've found is that the more women we train, the more expensive the mushroom seed becomes. Just when I left the country, because we only have like two very good uh, mushroom seed producers in the country, and so we're working to actually take up uh, the whole um, uh, uh, seed production uh, to manage it under the foundation to be able to make sure that we can supply to our people timely, but also the right quality. And where did you work in India? Uh, in India, 
I went to Jansi. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's a long time ago. <laughs> Got a man who knows his mushrooms in the front row, evidently. <laughs> and what are the challenges and resistance from the community in spreading this word? Uh, in Zimbabwe. In the in Zimbabwe or in other parts of the world? Well, you. So I, I have had some communities where, even just the name for mushroom translates to poor man's food. And uh, when you ask them, why do you call this poor man's food? Because well, when the mushrooms are in season, they don't need money to pay for it. They can go and fish in, in, in the forest, and so that's poor men's food. So they actually would rather have uh, polished white rice where they pay money to get it, and they think that is good food for them because they pay to get it. And that has been one of the challenges. But we've been able to really work uh, through that by really providing... So when we arrive in a community, we grow the first mushrooms, we cook with them and we give information about the nutritional values and the medicinal values so people really buy into the whole um, idea of co consuming mushrooms, not just something that they do because they can't afford to buy meat or to buy other things, but they do it because it's actually an important uh, um, integration to their own food. It will, it will be better for them. And that has been the major challenge. So um, there are no political impediments to your work? There is a little bit. So you have some times where you go in a, in a community and the, 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 the youth leaders, for example, we've had some trouble with some of the youth leaders who come into a community and say, well, what is this project and who's bringing this project? But most of the times you just have to answer to simple questions. They want just to be secure that this is not like an opposition in the making. And, and since we got our, our registrations where we can show that actually we are recognized by the uh, sitting government, and so there's no political agenda behind it. But otherwise, um, it's, it's not that difficult. I mean, Zimbabwe as a country, people are looking to really do something for themselves because there is a big need for it. Thank you. How many kilos do you produce? <laughs> <laughs> He's passed the baton. <laughs> So how many kilos we produce? I run a production at my place. It's not much that we're producing. We're like doing 20 kilos every day. The reason for that is that we've only been running my production at the center for the past year. And we first had to work on the market before we can produce large amounts. We didn't want a situation where we produce tons and tons of mushrooms and nobody wants to buy them. But right now, what we've been able to do is to generate enough demand for the mushrooms that we are struggling now to actually increase production. We're aiming to do a ton of mushrooms a week. Thank you. Thank but you. The, co the communities also have their own production, which is about five to 10 kilos uh, a day. You know, I'm just interested in how, when you go to a new group of women, do, is, is that a community? Do they get together as a... I'm trying to make a connection between whose land is it? Is it a community of women or are they running their own little business? Like, how, how does that work? And I'm interested whether microfinance plays a role in that. So how does that work when I go to a community? I identify groups of women who are known in the community to be working with orphans. I put them together, so I take two of those women in every community where I go to. I put them with uh, five young orphans. And these women normally have a small piece of land where they have a house. And even if it's just uh, 10 square meters, we start there. And once we start, because all the local leaders, the councillors, and all these people will know about it, 
and they want to tell to their friends about it, they want to share about it when they go to the meeting, so they get excited about that, we let them get excited, and then we say to them, look, we can actually grow this thing, can we have a piece of land? One of the things that we do as well is to partner with local schools, so when we go to a community, we are not just arriving to an individual, we go to the local leadership and we try to facilitate access to land through that. We go to schools where we sell the idea to the school that, you know, when you have this, you can use it as part of your education tools for the students and the school provides the land. Churches also help us to do that. But some of the women have their own land and then we, do the, we, we, we let the group work it in one place that is owned by the women who have land. But yes, the big issue is that most of the women do not own land. Most young orphans don't own land. But we try to build a community around them so they can access land. So what we're doing now is that we have the foundation where we provide the training. And normally, of course, we bring them to the training for free. We give them a starter kit that they can take back to their communities and, and, and start growing mushrooms. And so what we say is that, okay, this money that you have received through the foundation, we name it a loan, you will have to pay it back. But how do you pay it back? You need to be connected to a business so you can make money. And that is what I've been doing now. I, I, I've, I've done this through the foundation still before separating it. So I would go and negotiate market and now I've been able to do it through one of the biggest chains in Zimbabwe where I told them, look, I can produce mushrooms for you throughout the country. And they said, okay, fine, they want mushrooms. So the women produce mushrooms wherever they may be. They may be in Harare or in Bulawayo, and they bring these mushrooms to market. And so what we, we've decided to do now is to say when they get this startup kit from the foundation, we already t tell them that this is tied to some conditions. The condition is that you have to produce X amount of mushrooms that you sell to our for-profit arm, which is actually called Hop Food. You sell these mushrooms to Hop Food, then you own the money. You don't have to pay it back. This is also something that we do to build local ownership of the project so that they don't just sit and think, oh, another charity which is giving us money and we don't have to do anything about it. So what that does is that, first of all, when you ask them to go and estimate what, what it costs to build a mushroom house. They will come and say it's $5,000. But when you say, okay, I will give you a loan of $5,000 and you have to pay it back, they say, oh, let me work it out again. So they come back, they're like, oh, it's like $1,000. You give them $1,000 and then they build the size of mushroom house that we tell to them that this is the size. In there, they produce mushrooms and hope foods because we can, we can negotiate the market which they cannot do on their own. We do that and we do the branding for them and we do the product development for them and we take all the mushrooms and we bring them to market. But the company can also then work on exploring international markets and things like that. And they only have to pay a small amount for, uh, for the marketing and the branding that we're doing. And we're in the process of finalizing that now and we hope that uh, Hop Foods will start to operate from the 1st of June. So this is something that's new that we're tying to this to make sure that they, it also changes the thinking in terms of, you know, they don't think about the whole thing as charity. They actually start to interact with it as a business. So they, they know after, after a year and a half, the future of Hope stops with us and we are working with Hope Foods. And when we are with Hope Food, it has to be business and they have to start operating as a business. And that, that is the way they can own the money also. Yeah? 
is what? So that the profit goes back into the social purpose of the business. Exactly. That, that, that's, that's, that's what will happen, but it will be in a different way because then it's not, un, it's not under the future of hope which gives for free. We then use it to provide follow-up training to the units which are doing good so we can say, okay, now we're going to do bookkeeping which helps to grow the business and it's not any more charity. We can be very selective then who joins the for-profit arm of the initiatives we're introducing. That sounds like a very much better way of making it sustainable and giving people skills. We're trying. Yeah, <laughs> we're trying. We'll see where That's it excellent. Got one question there and then, then down the front to Dr Newton. Uh, you experiment with what? Raised garden beds. Ah, yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Definitely. Um, uh, our model can be adapted to that as well. That's uh, uh, possible. We've been exploring also different possibilities with uh, some restaurants in Cape Town who were interested in doing uh, with the vertical gardens, uh, aquaponics and things with mushrooms next to it and stuff like that. So, yes. There are many, many different kinds of uh, medicinal mushrooms that are being investigated at the moment, and yes, uh, there's quite a lot. But that's also part of the reason why we are very interested in spending some time with Paul Stamets next year, because he has um, Fungi Perfect. They already, they've been selling supplements for all those different ailments since uh, many, many years. And... Uh, we're very excited to be working with them and to see what we can learn and how we can bring that. I also spent some time in China learning about medicinal mushrooms and uh, I still plan to go back and to learn about easy processing so that any, the village women can be able to do that as well. So it's something that I'm very passionate about and I'm interested in learning as much as I can to be able to share that. Thanks, John. Is there a role that I would like you guys to play in the work that I do? Yeah. Mm. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, I, I strongly believe that we, the locals, in any community, have to take the lead in defining the solutions, but we still need a lot of help in terms of really doing thorough research of everything that works, because we're, we don't have yet the facilities to do that. So we will be very interested in any kinds of partnerships which will enable us to research and, and share results from the work that we are doing. So we'll be very, very interested in that. And that is a role that we think, yes. So if we say we think this can work in our environment, and you say, okay, we follow through that together, and we can actually prove, we can actually have research there saying, here, we did it, it worked, that is something that we'll be interested in. And of course, there will be also different kinds of support that we need. And if we can get access to those different kinds of support for solutions that we think will work to actually be implemented, that would be wonderful. Would you like to comment on that, Tim, too? Um, thank you. That's a really good question. Um, I, I think I want Cheeto to her words to answer that. But I, I would uh, I agree entirely in terms of what I see in India. In many cases, it's amazing. There doesn't need to be a lot of money. 
there needs to be some that comes from outside, but money that's well targeted where the solution or the issue is identified locally, um, that's, that's the key to this. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of money around actually for philanthropy internationally, but finding its location where it really makes a difference is something whereby we need to listen to the local, the, the situations in these particular places to really, um, to really make a difference in my view. Um, I don't know if that's what your experience is. It is, it is very true. You see organisations like ours who are really working on the field and we, we can do a lot with a small amount of money. We don't usually access the money because, of course, you, you also have to prove that you've worked with lots of big money and, like, well, they have worked with lots of big money but their impact compared to my impact with less money isn't really looked at. And I think that's, that's something very, very important to... to to find ways that we can collaborate to get to a point where we can actually be able to facilitate that the big money goes to the right kind of work that makes a difference. I think that's a lesson we could learn domestically considering that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are something like six times more likely to be food insecure than other Australians, which is uh, quite outstanding and embarrassing. Um, and I'd like to point out that Sam Coggins will probably be one of those people who actually does help in the future because he's already running the University Food Waste Management Facebook group. Yeah. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> Where's our next question coming from? Hi. Um, I just want to say, first of all, that I'm so inspired and impressed by you. And I'm really interested in mushrooms too, but... Um, I'm interested, mostly I do work in textiles, and I've been interested in the um, craft movement and you know, rebuilding communities through people making their own things instead of relying on big producers. And I was just wondering um, if you see as a result of what you're doing, other circles of people um, picking it up and saying, oh, we should do this with what we're doing too, you know, try to use that model um, in other ways, like in clothing or um, other types of necessities. There are groups of people indeed who are doing that. We have different people who are doing jewelry and uh, even some of the groups of people that we train, you have some of the people who are like, okay, I like this, what I've learned through farming mushrooms, but I actually prefer to do that uh, raising chickens and um, and we have some of the young girls uh, with us she says okay I'm really happy with what I've learned uh, cultivating mushrooms and I really want to do something but I want to study accountancy and then contribute towards the work that we're trying to do in that way so we 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 are facilitating uh, by creating a platform where we expose them to something that should hopefully help them to do something else and we've we recently introducing also a chicken project because we have realized that a lot of people say we like this but then maybe mushrooms are not eat so easy for us for the moment we want to actually do chickens and what we're working on now is also to take the waste from the mushrooms combine that in with other things into chicken feed and give that as a way, uh, as, as a feed for the chickens. We're collaborating on many different levels. We collaborate with a Belgian artist who's been crossbreeding chickens for art, and now he's got the biggest genetic bank of chickens in the world. So we bring different kinds of things in, and even when, when we uh, do training, we also give them a platform 
where they can express different of their talents in the hope that we can actually help to uh, uh, encourage them to uh, take that up and really develop it. I'm terrific. Hello. Oh, thank you. Uh, you mentioned, I think you touched a little bit about what I want to ask in that question, um, but you mentioned a little bit that using uh, food scraps um, as food for mushrooms is a faster way to compost uh, material. Uh, and I was just wondering what kind of links you've made uh, with other agricultural practices or in regards to less use of fertilisers, um, managing waste on farms and kind of wider farming practices, what kind of links are there? So I've mentioned that uh, we, we are now implementing what we call the mushroom-based integrated food production system. So we grow mushrooms, and with the waste from the mushrooms, we're growing vegetables and lots of pumpkins. This is one of our favorite new products. Uh, we grow different kinds of things. We grow um, uh, uh, grains. So we're looking at all these uh, superfoods that everybody is going crazy about and bringing them into this community, so we're growing chia, for example, and we are involved in a project where we will be introducing things like dragon fruit and uh, uh, things that are drought resistant, nutritious, that the locals can integrate into the normal um, consumption systems. Uh, the chickens is also one example where we see that chickens are something that every community woman has. Uh, they have a little uh, chicken coop where they have chickens, but uh, because of inbreeding, the chickens are very infertile, and we happen to have this access to something that works much better, and so we're introducing that to make sure that we build a system where even as the markets are changing, people will still have a, fall, a plan to fall, uh, fall back onto. And so we are doing integration because we really believe it's very important. I have a vegetable garden, which is 100% fertilized on waste from mushrooms and um, zero uh, pesticides, zero artificial fertilizers. And every community that we are training, actually this year alone, we'll be able to train our 20 communities We've trained 10 communities and we're working to train 10 more communities. And all of them, we also, we build a mushroom house for them, we build a small garden for them, and we build a small chicken coop for them. Because we really think that when they can do that, then they can manage better. Hi, Chido. Hi, Chido. Um, do you think you'll have to deal with a situation where, let's say, some of the stronger people in the community might exploit the girls that you set up for labor or and take all the kind of financial advantage? That's one of the things I sort of alluded to when I say some of the big players yes. in the communities. Um, that's also one of the reasons why I am working to set up this for-profit company where we can guarantee that all the women we train, they only work with us because we are sure that we will maintain in everything that we do, we have the interests of the women uh, uh, as a centerpiece of what we are doing. So we are setting up a company that will become competent enough to make sure that all the other players, even if they come in, they want to be associated with us and not actually go and uh, sideline our women and, and uh, take advantage of them. So right now we've worked, it, worked out such that we are the ones who fetch the highest price for mushrooms on the market today. We have the best mushroom in the country, and we have the best mushroom in the world also. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so what we work to do is really to, to be a few steps ahead of everyone. And this is also why, again, collaboration is something very important for us, because 
through these collaborations, we continue to explore different things that helps us to stay ahead of the game. So with the link that we have with the people from Noma, from MAD, we are learning now already and we're exploring what can we do to actually start processing the food. And the women feel that there is enough opportunities for them to stay with us, there's room for them to grow. And we are right now the only one who seems to be really thinking and providing that opportunity in a way that the women also feel comfortable to stay with us. And so part of it is also changing how we approach it that will help to stop the, the, the other big players from uh, uh, exploiting the, the women. We, we have to continuously um, uh, reinvent ourselves and think about how we can do it better. That challenge will come, but some of the things we will deal with them when they come up. Something you mentioned to me yesterday that, that resonate, really resonated with me was the, the way that what you're doing is actually creating safer communities. And I don't know whether Danny wants to weigh in on this too, but the cultural dimensions of these sorts of projects in terms of not just ensuring the right to food, but the right to other um, essential elements um, is really important. A, a learning platform where they feel they can well, all I, I was actually thinking when you were speaking, we know from experiences around the world that one of the, um, one of the necessary conditions for preventing gender-based violence is economic empowerment for women, right? So, and I, and, uh, I mean, I thought that was one of the, the most illuminating things that you said, that you look at young girls who are particularly vulnerable to violence and the prevention approach you have is economic empowerment. So it's looking at the preconditions rather than looking at preventing the symptom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my name is Claudine Mutu. I'm a doctorate transport sociologist within the business school. And, but my background is in environmental management. And I mention that because as I've been listening and feeling very inspired, so thank you, um, I've been thinking about that interconnectedness of the ecosystem that you've already talked about and how that links with the... Uh, interconnectivity of society and from my perspective transport as well and how all of that's really important but on the other side particularly when I was studying environmental management there was a concern about the colonization of different species and the introduction of species into different environments so I'm just wondering if um, you could comment on what kind of precautions are put in place there uh, in relation to the mushroom production? In relation to mainly the mushroom and that idea of moving certain endemic species from one <clears throat> place to another. Uh, sure. So in relation to the mushrooms, I think that that is controlled very naturally mm -hmm. uh, because when uh, what we're doing is with the production of mushrooms, so oyster mushrooms used at some point to be native actually to Zimbabwe, that's why when the first time uh, when people saw oyster mushrooms, they're like, oh, we know this mushroom, it's called Wawadanda. It used to grow here, but it doesn't grow anymore. But the, the competition for mushrooms um, it, with other microorganisms makes it almost impossible for them to become invasive if they are outside the mushroom house. And the, the production of mushrooms is, is done indoors when we put the spent substrate with mycelium in the ground, that really is something that we can control by providing or not providing the organic material that the mushrooms will thrive on. And I think if 
mycelium is going to be invasive? Well, I have no problem. And no one will have a problem because we already know about the benefits of mycelium and it, it, it's not damaging any, any plants. So we are already, part of what we're doing when we put it in the garden is actually to see also if it will start damaging other vegetables and stopping them from growing. There's no risk of that. And um, the, the competition that will be generated by other microorganisms makes it very unlikely that we will have an invasion of oyster mushrooms. But actually, even if we have it, <laughs> but we have things like chia, for example, the new, the new grains which we are taking in because we think, oh, these are superfoods, and we are looking now to bring in um, amaranth and all these things. I, I think in the same way, you, a lot of these things are also uh, very seasonal, and uh, uh, cultivated lands are very sort of uh, um, tightly controlled. I think there will be a way. I just had one more question. Um, um, we do a little bit in Zimbabwe ourselves, and one of the things that... What do, what, who are you? Could you uh, introduce just, what you uh, do? Just, my wife and I have a foundation called the Sally Foundation, and we do some vegetable garden projects in Bulawayo. But one of the things that we've found is that... Um, and these are community-based, large, largely women, but not not solely women. Uh, so they effectively own and run these gardens themselves. And what we what we find is, like you go there one six months later, the best garden is now the worst garden. And when you try and work, and, and then six months later it'll be the other way around. And what we find is that there's, um, and I'm just curious whether you're finding this, is. Um, effectively power struggles that go on within the community. And, and I put it down to, well, you look at the leadership in the country and you kind of see what else, where's my role model? And it appears as though that role model is, in, in, is infecting itself at the local level. And I'm just curious whether, whether you find that or not. We find that as well, but these are things that we have to deal with. And, and part of doing what we're doing is also to step away from this whole oh, uh, role models that people in power on the highest level. We're trying to build our own models. And I take it personally that I am going to be a role model for my community. So when I have these challenges, I sit down with the groups of women and I talk to them and I try to reorganize it. Until today, we've been, we've been able to solve a lot of those issues locally. One of the major issues is also that, um, yes, sometimes we go into community and we are continuously battering each other when there's an issue, we don't really address it. And so that issue continues to show up and we try to sort of really confront some of the issues. And we've had to do that and some of the groups, we've had to split them. What we make sure to do is that when there's a problem, especially when you put two adult women together and they have to be in charge of five youngsters, you always have one who wants to say, okay, my way is the way that works. And what we do when we see that happening, we split the group, we continue with both of them and we, we continue to, to coach them, to help them, to, to build an, an understanding. So yes, that's a, that's a challenge in Zimbabwe, but I think we should stop looking at it in comparison to higher leadership and say, well, what can they do? There is definitely everything that we can do and we have to do it. Question um, down the back. Thanks. Um, I was just interested if you could speak a little bit more about 
Um, when you first went from having the idea to extending it into the first community, it seems like your system now is very well organised. Um, how you learned? We are still working to organise it. <laughs> and again, this has been something that I've had to learn by doing. So we started and we thought, okay, the foundation is a good idea. Uh, we are working with the foundation. We've had to solve small issues like the ones I just spoke to and, and issues about getting to market and how do we make this work. And we are today at this point where we're building a for-profit for company to try and see what it looks like if we run it like this. So we are still working it out. And uh, every time we start, we arrive at a point where we learn new things and we work it out. That I, we didn't really have like a master plan when we started. We just had really that there was a need and we want to address it. And we're continuing to learn and grow through that. Answered? Not really. <laughs> how, how long ago was it? Just how long ago was your first project, Cheeto? Well, um, I set up the foundation in 2013. And uh, back then I just did one training and then I didn't do any training sessions in 2014. I did, uh, no, I did another training session in 2014 and I was trying to find my way uh, uh, securing uh, a space where I could actually run the training center and have a, a customized center. We were still working to build the customized center and part of the reason why we are here is actually to mobilize support towards that. So you will see on your um, uh, uh, leaflets that you have that there's also information on how you can support us to do that. So uh, it's since 2013, but today we have uh, around 25 communities which we have trained. And by the end of the year, we'll have 35 communities. And we're still working to make sure that everyone will be uh, in full production and that we'll have access to market. So it's not, it's, it's not that old yet. But of course, I've been growing mushrooms for 20 years. And do we have a, do we have a, we're just about to wrap up, but do we have anyone who's got a, Ruth's got a question in the front here? <laughs> got an excellent voice. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I guess one of the things that I'd like, the great final question actually about the relationship between your um, micro focus on really good agricultural practices and the policy context around climate change in Zimbabwe and whether there is uh, support from the government or the state or even local governments to um, actually promote a sustainable agriculture in relation to what obviously must be affecting uh, rural people in Zimbabwe around climate change and and the, the you know what's is this a supportive context for you to have hope for this sort of a growing movement of sustainability at that micro level? There is, but it's still very small. And uh, I mean, as, as is the story when people have discussions about Monsanto, it always boils to, yeah, but they're starving people in this area and in that area. I think we still have quite a lot of that because we still have a lot of things to figure out in terms of just being productive since what happened with the land invasions and everything. So it's, we, we do have uh, you know, people working to uh, push for sustainability and, and, and then to influence policy, policies in that regard, but it's still very, very, very small scale. And we are working to try and see if, uh, I mean, 
we, we are part now of a group of organizations who are trying also to push for this. And we, again, small efforts. But we, we, do, re, we, we do see that there is space for that. Um, and, and, and there's a, a considerable amount of people who are now sensitive to it. And I can see it growing in the next coming years once things are starting to stabilize and once we have enough people on the lowest level taking this up. Well, thank you. You've been attending Growing Change, Female Empowerment Through Farming and Social Enterprise. I would like to thank the audience for some excellent questions. I'd like to thank my colleagues, Professor Danielle Selimar and Professor Tim Alanda. But most of all, we'd like to thank this fabulous woman beside me for coming here and sharing her amazing story with us. So from all the University of Sydney and the public here tonight, thank you so much, Cheeto, because you are, it's such a cliche, but you are truly inspirational and amazing. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.